and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medievalist Ryan Speech to discuss Toledo Cruce de Vecinos, a 2012 Spanish historical drama series. So Ryan, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular piece of media since uh, you actually suggested this one to me? Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to talk about this series. I am a professor of Spanish at University of Michigan, and I have uh, appointments in a couple different departments. So I have hats in Romance Languages and Literatures, but also in Judaic Studies and in Middle East Studies. And I'm currently director of the Center for Middle East Studies and North African Studies. And my interest in my research is about contact between different religions, and particularly uh, how different religious people wrote about their contact, and in particular conversion. But I'm interested in general in how that also gets represented in popular culture or popular memory, and the the dissonance between those two things. So uh, I was really excited about this show because it's right at the heart of stuff that I teach. And I actually teach a course on Alfonso X, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, he's the star of this show. And I also teach a course on uh, Spanish television and and how it represents the Middle Ages called Binge Watching Spanish History, where this is one (laughs) of the shows that I've assigned. So I'm really excited to be able to think about it from a a kind of medievalist perspective to talk about what's useful in it or what's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. And in particular, Alfonso is at the center of my my attention. Uh, I've done a, a recent movie short documentary movie about Alfonso for uh, my classes, and it's on YouTube. You could see that. Uh, It's called The Birth of Spanish in 3D, and it actually has a website with images of Alfonso's world in Toledo and other places where we visited. We do 360 photographs, so you can actually Mm -hmm. use uh, VR glasses and enter into these spaces, and it kind of traces the influence of Alfonso on the history of Castilian and really what I'm calling the birth of Spanish, but uh, and that's the name of my course uh-huh. as well. It's really the idea that Alfonso X is decisive or critically important in the, the transfer from uh, essentially the growth of one among different dialects in uh, mm-hmm. Iberian Romance dialects in the peninsula to a political idea of a dialect, the idea that yeah. uh, Castilian can be an intellectual, political, historical language on par with classical languages. So, mm-hmm. If Which that's what we're calling, in, uh, right? This, <laughs> right, that's uh, the theme. The show, so. <laughs> and if that's what we're calling uh, a language is, you know, a dialect with an army, maybe. Well, this is when Alfonso X is really critical in, in transforming yeah. this one dialect and making it dominant. That's why I think, well, how did Spanish become a world language? Well, mm-hmm. it's kind of, uh, if we trace it all the way back, I'll say it's not, you know, the birth of this dialect in the mountains of, of Spain. It's actually uh, a, a political decision by someone like mm-hmm. Alfonso X in the 13th century. So I'm super excited to see how images of Alfonso get put on the screen. Yeah. Because um, I think he's critically important. Things that people don't realize about Alfonso, that he has his image, you know, in Congress, in the House of Representatives, in Washington. I did not know that. He's on the wall alongside all the great lawgivers of history. Wow. 
I'm right. I'm actually kind of embarrassed I don't know that because I grew <laughs> up in Washington DC uh, yeah. or in the suburbs of Washington DC. So uh, I will I will have to look for that. It's it's you know something I think easy to miss, but he's alongside Moses and Hammurabi wow. <laughs> and, and others, and of course Thomas Jefferson. So there's a, a gallery in the House of Representatives on the wall. Wow that has all of these these friezes of great lawgivers. And so Alfonso gets a place, but people don't know who he is really at all. And I think that's that's really unfortunate because he's really critically important um, in not just Spanish, but world history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I'm I'm very excited also to discuss this with you since, well, of course, this material and Alfonso X are things that come up a lot in my teaching in terms of my main research. Uh, I focus on that other uh, deeply ignored in this series, uh, part of what is now Spain, the crown of Aragon. Also interesting from a linguistic perspective in terms of, uh, well, what is now Spain and what is considered the national language of Spain, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but that is that is not something that is acknowledged to uh, to exist in particular in, the, in this series. Not at all. No, it's really interesting how insular <laughs> this series is. Not only does it seem like Toledo is Spain, it's it's everything. It's like its own little kingdom, but it's yeah. uh, there's not even hardly mention of Castile. Even they gesture to the right. fact that it's in this kingdom, but it's really like he's on this great big island called Toledo, and <laughs> he's captain of of the ship. It's really interesting how little of the rest of uh, reality exists, and how everything is centered around Toledo, as if it were uh, the one place Alfonso uh, spent time. Yeah, and including uh, that, you know, they they really do not acknowledge actually the fact that there is actually an Aragonese connection in the sense that uh, our Queen Violente is in fact uh, from from Aragon. She is a, she is the daughter of Jaume the first, and that's I would say not implied to be the case and never brought up. Very very little uh, there. I mean, there's there was in the whole thirteen episodes, I found one moment or heard one moment where she made reference to this, and it was yeah. at the very end when Alfonso was was actually talking about one of his affairs, and she was basically asking for uh, his lover to be kicked out of out of the castle mm-hmm. or out of court, and she said, you know, I'm the daughter of a king. Uh, I deserve, uh, you know, to be treated. I was born to rule as a queen. I deserve to be treated as royalty. Mm -hmm. Like you can't be, you know, don't think I'm just some hussy that you're (laughs) having an affair with like these chambermaids. I'm actually the daughter of a king. And so there's a reference to this idea, but it's very totally like not, not explored and certainly not specified in any clarity. So it's, it's as if, uh, Alfonso exists in the, in the middle of a, a totally unified Spanish world. That's one among many, I think, details that we could talk about. Yeah. So before we get into the series, I often will talk about the casting when I do this podcast. Uh, I am do not have... I do not spend a lot of time, to be honest, watching uh, Spanish television. And so none of these people are people that I have seen before. Are there any actors before we move on to talking about the content that you have particular opinions about or have seen elsewhere or anything like that? Oh, yeah, totally. It's really interesting how this show has so many actors who are, I think, known in these common series. So the the main one, Juan Diego, is uh, who plays Alfonso, King Alfonso himself. He's known from a couple of different shows, Hombres de Paco, 
and another more dramatic uh, show, Bete de Mi, which is actually a really interesting drama, kind of about this father-son hmm. rivalry or, or uh, emotional stress. And so it's a really interesting um, kind of parallel because in Cruce de Destinos, the one we're talking about, uh, about Toledo, is he, it's centered around the kind of father-son problems mm-hmm. that were imagined in the court. And so uh, it's it's a bit parallel to Bete de Mi, but Juan Diego is a really great actor in mm-hmm. these in this context. Some of the other people, like uh, the one who plays Violante, right, his wife, Patricia Bico, she's known from the uh, a kind of soap opera type show, ah. Hospital Central. So <laughs> one of a couple of sort of soap actors uh, mm-hmm. in this. I'm not shocked to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, some of them though. I was really interested in the the actor who plays his son Fernando, the younger son in this, mm-hmm. uh, not in reality, but in this show, he's the younger son, Jaime right. Olias, because he recently appeared in uh, another medieval show, which is the Cid, right? The Cid show that's on Amazon. Oh, that's right. I have not gotten a chance to watch that yet. He plays Alfonso the Sixth, and is oh. really a significant role in that and so it's really interesting to see him move from being kind of the infante in this Mm -hmm. show um to being the king who has a huge historical impact and who's in that show also fighting with a brother named sancho so it's a really interesting parallel as happens regularly in castilian history constantly yeah um that's a much i'd say much better to use a mm-hmm. uh, not very descriptive word uh, a much better dramatization of this rivalry mm-hmm. at least in, in cinematic terms but that actor is is definitely uh mm-hmm. known in now because he's playing on amazon's the cid mm-hmm. one interesting fact i looked up among the different people that are kind of represented here the one who plays rodrigo perez de ayala eduardo farello he's known i think best because he plays uh the spanish version of Gollum in the spanish dubbing really? of lord of the rings so oh that is um, amazing yeah that i think is the coolest uh, sort of parallel is that he he's the spanish Gollum. so um among all the others they're definitely known the guy who plays the archbishop his face is quite known and he's in a lot of different shows and some of the others too like you know maxi iglesias plays martin uh, he's the son, and he's known from a couple of different soaps, you know, that are mm-hmm. <laughs> cheesy too. But I think that the Eduardo Farillo as the Spanish Gollum is probably the coolest connection yeah. of all. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there I could talk about the others as well. They're they're all I think all of them are are known in different contexts, very different contexts, and they they do different things. So to have them in this show in these roles is, is curious. And a little distracting, just like in the Sid mo- uh, the Sid series, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's distracting because the actors are quite known, and so you ha- you can't uh-huh. imagine them not in these other roles. Same is true here. Some of the, these actors, you can't imagine them in this role, uh, take them seriously as a medieval person because you're imagining them mm-hmm. <laughs> in these other series. And especially, I would say, because uh, you know, I mean, well, the costumes are a mixed bag, but mostly not great <laughs> definitely and kind of that combined and like none of them have i would say particularly sort of medieval hairstyles or anything like that for the most it really does kind of seem like everybody is sort of playing dress up in a very obvious way i would say and i'm sure if you know yeah. the actors from other things <laughs> where you're used to seeing seeing them dressed in modern garb that's even heightened definitely i i cannot let 
uh, us go back, go by the hairdo that the Archbishop gets. What is up with this bull haircut that he, I mean, that is so awful. (laughs) I don't know what they've done to him. I guess they imagine that this is, (laughs) this is how monastic or clerical people dressed in the middle ages because. Well, it's so odd because I kept sort of expecting that given that sort of odd haircut, they would also then at least give him a tonsure. Yeah, right. Which, That's of course, what they don't. It's, it's like the stand-in, something equally. Yeah. It's almost as if he had a mullet or something. It's it's like... Right. No, it's bizarre. <laughs> really interesting. And most interesting. of the women just have, like, long, gorgeous, flowing hair. Yeah, especially Fatima. She looks like she's always come straight from having her hair done. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Fat- Fatima should be, like, a you know, a model for Garnier Fructis or something. like. Absolutely. The, yeah. They're a beautiful couple. Great though, hair. You know. Oh, yeah. Martine and Fatima, they're... They're, and they are actually both, you know, models. So mm-hmm. uh, Maxi Iglesias is, is yeah. a hunk in Spain who, who's definitely, besides being a soap actor, is a, is a model. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they look like they've just come from the runway. They're so uh, yeah. attractive in the show. There's absolutely no shame about having Fatima show all of her hair. She's walking around with mm-hmm. these flowing locks as a Muslim, young, unmarried Muslim woman. No big deal. Just kind of like, sporting her amazing yeah. hairdo so that that's interesting i think we could really go down a rabbit hole talking about how muslims are represented uh oh yes in, in this <laughs> the fact that no muslim actors of course are used oh, no. to play these muslims <laughs> is one among many kind of amazing faults but um, yeah uh and i will note that there uh there is there is precisely one real jewish character uh so that is uh abraham who is this uh who seems to then kind of do everything right that he's kind of like a merchant and he also like kind of is like involved in the in the translation projects and he and he's like rodrigo's like buddy and so he just like has to <laughs> do everything because they don't have any other you know that like might involve the jewish community because they don't have any other jews yeah he's um, like he's like the token jew he actually i was really shocked at the end too how he ends up being the brother of what's your name barbara the right the, the brothel owner that too is an unexpected connection (laughs) but i love it how at the end when she dies barbara the 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 madame of the of the brothel she dies and in her hand she has a star of david a bloody star Mm -hmm. of david and she says i never lost my faith before she died even though she was cast out as you know a prostitute and a um, right. unclean woman she still maintained her faith to the end so there i was right. like oh not that you know Jew- that <laughs> until the end i mean you right. actually i don't think know even that she's jewish until that last episode so totally yeah not at all i think that was a total twist and to see her suddenly i'm like i was confused at first when there was you know a menorah on her on the table i'm like what the heck mm-hmm. is that doing there and then i realized oh she's jewish oh wait then it comes out she's his brother i mean his uh sister i thought wow mm-hmm. that's quite a quite a twist of uh, of the plot but yeah. but a really exciting one right i'm like yeah yeah two jews look at that two jews surprise <laughs> one one uh, jewish woman that's yeah, exciting. a jewish woman so that, that, <laughs> there's that there's this throwaway scene and i can't remember what episode it was when the this side series uh, or side plot about the the templar treasure that they don't find mm-hmm. there's this last throwaway scene where the this group of Jews comes and takes it away right. under Abraham's directions. He's like, Oh yeah, we have to go hide this. So I assume that, that all of those guys little, are Jews. Yeah. Yes. And there's a couple, yes, there's a couple of Jews who like appear, but don't, but are not named, I don't think, and are not real characters. Uh, and then there's, yeah, that, 
that yeah, scene which felt sketchy. a little yeah jewish international financial conspiracy oh totally that that plays right yeah. into the jewish cabal of you know they're running the banking system they they yeah. know where the secret treasure is yeah um but it wasn't at all surprising it was one of many stereotypes yes the, this show traffics in so I think that should be a good lead into uh, our our enumeratio section or uh, or recap where we get into a discussion of the series. I suggest we're not going to do an episode by episode detailed discussion just because I think Good. that would take a very long time. So for anybody interested in watching it, there are 13 episodes. Each episode is about 75 minutes long, give or take. Yes. So there's long there's a decent amount of this minutes. show. Uh, yeah, and a lot of it's kind of very plot dense, I would say. So we're definitely not going to get into every detail, but warning if you are interested in watching this and haven't, uh, we are going to have spoilers for the entire series. Yes, but not that that's going to spoil anything because you can predict what's going to happen minutes before yeah. it happens because once oh, you yeah. get the pattern you see that <laughs> this is just repeating itself these tropes uh of soap oh, operas yeah. so yeah um it'll spoil it but it won't spoil anything if you're actually watching this you'll know what's happening long before it happens yes i do want to start despite <laughs> saying i'm not going to go episode by episode i do actually want to start with the opening scene because i think the opening scene is really fascinating in terms of how it sets the tone for the rest of the series and in particular in terms of sort of what they're doing in terms of the depictions of Christians and of Muslims, because we start out in this very idyllic village. There's, you know, perfect streaming sunlight and everybody is happy. And it seems like all of the people of different social statuses are just happily playing together and having a wonderful time in uh, on the kind of, you know, outskirts <laughs> of this castle. They're all very fair haired and, you know, and fair skinned. And then dramatically arrive uh, these uh, Muslim invaders who just brutally slaughter essentially every single person there in an extremely gratuitous manner. Including the children, the women and the children, yes. just completely mowed down by these yes. <laughs> marauding Muslims. Rodrigo, who will be one of our central characters, it's his, it's his castle, but he's you know not, not at home. He's off fighting. And so it's his wife and children. The oldest of the children gets killed. The wife runs inside and hides the two younger children in this chest. They follow her in and really do just kind of gratuitously murder her. There's no reason. I mean, I actually kind of assumed that they were going to capture her and take her for ransom or something, which would have at least kind of made sense. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been the the expected sort of play unfolding of this scene but i think that the the gratuitous murders have to happen for the whole show to have this balance yes. because it's a rivalry between the Mus the evil muslim abu bark and rodrigo uh, has to right. be set up by this murder because these kids the oldest is is rodrigo's son and so he holds and then his wife uh, is the the woman who's murdered in front of the children yeah. Uh, the two younger children who end up being characters in the show. So this is a really striking 
misrepresentation of yes. um, frontier life. But I think that I, I was, it took me a couple of episodes to even decide where this was happening. At first, I thought it was just yeah. happening out there in the void in somewhere in, you know, uh, Spanish land. But I realized that this is supposed to be somewhere to the south, I mm-hmm. think, that this is roughly supposed to be uh, the frontier uh, and that these Muslims are actually supposed to be from Granada. This is what I've decided after only after many episodes, I realized that Abu Bark is actually supposed to be from Granada. He's a national. Oh, okay. Muslim, I don't think I picked up on that. So. It's definitely not clear in the beginning. It comes back. So the, the question is like, how is he just prancing around, you know, in Toledo and bringing his Muslim army all the way up, way up to Toledo, if he's from Granada? How could that happen? And right. then doing stuff and leading rebellions yeah. and whatever. Um but he that that's the concept. And he just that, shows up at court and Alfonso's like, hi, nice to see you. Yeah, he shows up and he's all aggressive and um and then he he leads a, a rebellion of Muslims in the city by the end. And um it's 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 ridiculous because of course he's supposed to be far off on the frontier. This isn't at all clear though in the beginning. It just seemed like you know, Muslims and and Christians are fighting and that the frontier is right outside of Toledo. Right. But I think that the idea is that Rodrigo's not from Toledo. This is at least how I've pieced it together. Rodrigo and his family are living somewhere towards the south. And in fact, you wonder, is it Ciudad Rodrigo? That mm. was something that crossed my mind. That, it, you know, this, this frontier village or whatever further south. But I think even further south and that he's been fighting on the border with the Nasrid kingdom. Not totally historically ridiculous, not mm-hmm. impossible in the 13th century, yeah. but I think it's the way it's represented as if it's this long and ongoing war. Right. That, you know, all the it. men are fighting uh, off on the frontier and villages are getting slaughtered like that. I think that's all completely yeah. overblown. And yeah. exactly right. I think that the uh, the truth is that the, the children and the, wi- the women and the children would have been taken as ransom. They would not have been yeah. uh, at all killed gratuitously they would have been taken as captives if they were you know taken at all but the idea that the whole village is going to get mowed down and especially when they're not fighting back that that he's that abu bark and his men are just going to slaughter women no it's completely ridiculous in this in this context and I think really does set the stage in a couple of ways. It first of all kind of sets up this big conflict between Rodrigo and Abu Bark, but also I think really does create this dynamic where while on the one hand, the show sometimes kind of wants to be about how, you know, this kind of idea of the three faiths living together and cooperating, it also kind of wants to have a little bit of a well, the good guy, of course, is a Christian. And while there's, you know, other Christians we don't like, and there's Muslims we do like, there is still this kind of good guy, nice blonde Christian man and bad guy, darker skinned Muslim man. And that is, I think, an important element of what's happening in this series. And I will also note that this is the beginning of, I guess I would say, some pretty gratuitous violence against women throughout the Mm -hmm. series that uh, starting with this unnecessary slaughter of Rodrigo's wife sets the tone in a lot of ways for uh, what we will subsequently see. Yes. There are no Muslim men in this show who are both knights and who are honorable. That is, uh, if they're at all 
um, knights or militaristic at all. They're completely yeah. violent and unstoppable and corrupt and scary. There are definitely some good Muslims, and these are the intellectuals of Toledo, mm -hmm. and they seem to, you know, walk around. They're either old or kind of really, really bookish. But then anybody who's a knight, there are no Muslim knights who are at all yeah. uh, good, and they're dark and yeah. scary, and they ride in with this ridiculous chainmail <laughs> get up, and yeah. Abu Bark is the leader of this. But I think that there's overall the violence towards women is part of this big picture of the representation of of male violence uh, mm -hmm. on the frontier and what it does. So I was really interested yeah. in the sort of sub the subplot or the theme of kind of like PTSD, these guys coming yeah. back from supposedly this horrendous war mm -hmm. uh, and they're just all crazy and messed up. Um, in, the, mm -hmm. in one of the last episodes, the, the son of one of the soldiers of Rodrigo comes back and he's just insane with yeah. anger um, uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think that's a, a strange plot um, how the men in this show are constantly blowing their top and, and striking yeah. out at women, even the good guys, right. Even, yeah. um, you know, of all of them, I think Rigo, he's a good, good guy, but he still loses his cool sometimes and raises his hand even yeah. to his daughter uh, yeah. almost and stops himself. And you see him like on the verge of striking. And, and also um, his son, Martin, who's supposed to be, he's, you know, he's the boyfriend and he's supposed to be super sweet, but sometimes he freaks out and, and even, you know, loses his, his patience and, strikes out and seems certainly yeah intimidate you know like he's trying to intimidate her if not that yeah completely yeah, yeah. and I, th I think that it's strange how completely violent the men are and i think that the mm -hmm. overall this plays into what i see a lot in shows about the middle ages which is that people think they're always fighting and having sex uh, yes. just constantly uh that there's 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 just gratuitous sex and violence and there's yeah. just no control no societal control yeah um, and that's and that's very much you know a trope right this idea that everybody was was more violent in the middle ages fundamentally than they are now and so you have to have this constant and unrestrained violence uh, which in particular often includes the the victimization of women there's also a lot of sexual assault in this show as we'll we'll continue to touch on explicit uh, i would uh, yeah, this very is something explicit which... Yes, major, you know, trigger warning for anyone watching the show that there is some quite, there are some quite graphic scenes of sexual assault in the show. Especially the early episodes. I, I usually show in my class, I tend to show like two at a time per class, at least depending on how fast we're moving. And um, the first four episodes are the ones we can usually get through. And I had students complain that I didn't give them yeah. enough trigger warning. Um, you know, I said, this is a cheesy, violent, sexual show but i had students come back and say you didn't prepare us so that this was, there were actual like rape scenes uh, depicted yeah. on screen on television more than once and so it's it's yeah. shocking really not just violence but also the whole show is is just packed with gratuitous sexual encounters yes um, and it's really really gratuitous but it's just completely outside of any plot elements too um, right like they, they really <laughs> don't have a lot stringing the plot scenes together in some cases, but, but these right. sex scenes then take up, you know, minutes uh, of yeah. our time. And, and of course, there's a lot of nudity, especially in the first six episodes. Uh, it's really, yeah. really 
totally gratuitous, but it's totally distracting too. Like, yeah. what what are they, you know, doing with this? And it's, it's supposed to be on Spanish television. And I do also think some of the the choices about nudity and whose nudity is shown is also very deliberate. I mean, there's a number of women who are represented as being prostitutes. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's this woman, Diana, who is first sleeping with uh, the king's son, Sancho, and then is sleeping with Alfonso. And so, you know, a whole a whole series of adventures with her. And she's somebody who we we see a lot of her naked and this uh, seems to be something that is kind of indicating that we are, we are supposed to kind of hypersexualize her. And I think also are supposed to, as an audience kind of slut shame this woman. More, more sort of tra- trigger warnings. She's not only first the girlfriend of uh, the prince, you know, of the Infante Sancho, but, and then of the King, but before that, you know, the son rapes her. Yeah. More than once, and then she and then she's really him into becomes, him, which yeah, is then she's like, very oh, I'm in love disturbing. with you. That yeah. so that that whole plot of of starting off with a sexual assault and then it transforms into this love affair is completely yeah. grotesque, and it's yeah. uh, never addressed again. Right? Suddenly, she becomes yeah. she goes from being the assaulted to the girlfriend to completely smitten with him with the prince, and then. To such an extent that then she he he completely shames her again. So yeah. abuses her by mistreating her and and calling her garbage. So it's almost like a, a sort of follow up on the actual physical assault. Yeah, I mean it's so a the very abusive relationship. Yeah, that she is you know very emotionally invested in in a in a way that's very upsetting that the show you know does not deal with critically at all. No, and she's she's like a punching bag for everybody. Also, yeah. she becomes the sexual object of the archbishop, who yeah. at first seems to be manipulating her and then seems to be in love with her, but then ultimately lets her die, spoiler alert, you know, in a horrible yeah. uh, way, pregnant with the king's baby. <laughs> she's left in a dungeon forgotten when the archbishop is sent to have his head chopped off. So it's a which is a very <laughs> deliberate choice, right? Like, like they ask him like any last words and you get the, like the flash to Diana in this dungeon and he goes, nope, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> As they cut off his head. <laughs> and so when, you know, and we see she seems to like starve to death and get eaten by rats in this dungeon. Yeah. And the, the with her, of course, the baby, which is right. Alfonso's, Alfonso's baby. So that it's the plot loose end is wrapped up in this way a really interesting way because how are they going to bring this back you know if she came back to the court Mm -hmm. she would be a problem for everybody now you don't have to worry about that (laughs) now she happily you know it's conveniently died off in a cell underground i also think it's very striking that so you know we have these two other younger women of fatima and blanca and these are both these women who we are overall supposed to like and who I think are also both being, you know, represented, right, as young women from elite families who are having their first romantic experiences. Blanca is that she makes the horrendous choice of um, <laughs> that there's this uh, this man, Umberto, who is uh, the, so first of all, he's the, uh, the son of the um, Count de, uh, de Miranda, right, who is uh, one of our main villains and who is a kind of acknowledged big enemy of her father. And Berto is not only Miranda's son, but also at the point then Blanca sort of starts to have this kind of brief involvement with him. The only thing really that either she or we as the audience know about him is that he, we see him on screen commit this incredibly brutal rape of this uh, lower status woman, of this innkeeper's daughter. 
And then, you know, the family like buys her off essentially, you know, by, and then you know, the Miranda family, right, buys them off. And so, you know, he's, he is ultimately acquitted, but they're very suspicious circumstances. Pretty much everybody knows that that or something like that happened. And inexplicably Blanc is like, yeah, this guy. He's kind of cute. Yeah. This is suddenly becomes the, like she goes from being a sensible, virtuous daughter to she gets to the court and says, oh, those are just rumors, even though, you know, 20 people yeah. were in the room watching him uh, yeah. assault this woman and then somehow starts to entertain his his overtures towards her. And I think it it is really interesting how that plays out because it never you you're afraid through the whole show that she's going to be a victim uh, yeah. of him and that she's on the point of just complete destruction, right? Uh, you, yeah. you know that he's awful and somehow she's so stupid that she keeps thinking like, well, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe he's actually yeah. sweet. And then it's not until the end when you realize right. that she she finally decides. Thank goodness. That uh, that he's no good. I was actually really gratified, like completely satisfied, and it was very gratifying to watch yeah. Umberto at the end stab his father. Yes, right. Like this was a perfect yeah. plot resolution of yeah. uh, how evil the count was and how just awful the son was. The only good way to do away with the count in a satisfying way was to have his own ridiculous uh, yeah. son come and stab him. Yeah, especially because you know you can't have Rodrigo stab everybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> But again, you know, totally, she's the one, I think, female character who's not gratuitously exploited uh, as right. far as like how she's represented on screen, whereas Fatima is. This is yes. so scandalous and, and offensive. I mean, it starts out the first time we see Fatima, she's naked and we're mm-hmm. peeping in on her bath. She's having a bath in her kind of giant bathtub in the middle of her right. courtyard. And this is like a King David and and Bacheva moment where we're looking in at her bathing and and we're um, constantly positioned as this voyeur in this poor woman's you know bedroom and and you know and bathing chamber and it be yeah it become we take in uh, kind of the perspective of Martine who kind of mm-hmm. barges in and fall, literally falls into her courtyard and she nurses him back to health and doesn't seem to mind you know that she's been sp- sort of completely right. spied on but then like the this is played out more than once we see her bathing not only is it problematic just from a, a sort of representational point of view of uh female characters always appearing naked in these first mm-hmm. episodes but also this is a muslim woman so not only yeah. sort of throwing her hair all around but we're like spying into her uh innermost chamber and representing it on this is a christian man who yeah is watching right. uh, a Muslim woman bathing naked and she doesn't seem to mind, <laughs> you know, she, she's very attractive. She's very attractive. And then she, she's yeah. super smart too. That's the other yeah. thing is like, she's right. it's sort of hilariously cute how she ends up giving classes at the school of translators. Right. So she's that she, <laughs> and she corrects somebody, right. She kind of like, uh, you know, she's kind wonderful. of like, you know, happens to like see, and she's like, that translation's wrong. And this is the, this is the right way to do it. But but yeah, but I do think it is very deliberate the the sexualization of Fatima in contrast with Blanca, who is very consistently portrayed as uh, as very innocent in a lot of ways. And to you know, we we never see her naked. Right, and I so you know her name Blanca is of course yeah. uh, very sort of a clue, very indicative of what she's supposed mm-hmm. to represent. The plot of Fatima is really interesting because she's supposed to be this liberated 
woman, this Muslim daughter who's been raised by the al-Faqi of the city, the Muslim judge or jurist of the city, who's kind of like the, the leader, the intellectual spiritual leader of the Muslims of Toledo, uh, to be in herself an intellectual, right? He teaches her mm -hmm. to be independent-minded, supposedly, and yeah. to read, and she knows pharmacology, and she reads and translates ancient books. And in the beginning, it seems like the, the father is encouraging her to be independent mm -hmm. and saying, yes, yeah. this is what I raised you. I didn't raise you to, you know, just be a typical woman. But then mm -hmm. as it plays out, her, her freedoms or her independence becomes a problem. And he starts yeah. becoming more conservative and saying, well, you were born to bear children for Allah. Right. So, and, and if yeah. you stick with this Christian boyfriend, I'll disown you in public forever. Mm -hmm. Which is what happens. And it's essentially right? right, and it's the second uh, you know, it's the second he she you know crosses him, right? That he's he's sort of fine with her being independent on this kind of theoretical level when he gets to sort of trot her out as you know, look how smart my daughter is. But you know, she I think she first actually you know she challenges him. Oh, there's this uh, there's this friend of hers, right, who has this kind of arranged marriage and she right. doesn't want to marry him, and she has this kind of you know impoverished man that she wants to marry instead. And Fatima's father is furious to find out that, you know, she's helped this other woman try to escape this arranged marriage. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, you know, there are things in this show for all of the ways we talk about these kinds of changes or ridiculous representations of historical fact. There are things in this show that are kind of plausible. And this is one of them, the idea that it would be really punishable if a Muslim woman was, mm -hmm. in this case, running away with another guy who wasn't, you know, right. her designated husband in this context, but also the risk that Fatima and Martine are taking, certainly, especially Fatima, you know, a Muslim, an unmarried Muslim woman who's running around with a Christian guy, according to sources that we have, you know, we know that this was something talked about in, in the legislation. We have a Christian side in Alfonso's writing about what mm -hmm. would happen, you know, if a Christian unmarried Christian woman sleeps with a Muslim man or right. a married woman or a widow or a prostitute, right? Like those are the categories. And we have kind of a parallel Muslim version in the so-called Leyes de Moros or uh, mm -hmm. other, not exactly contemporary, but shortly, you know, 14th century legal representations of what was expected. And I think it's it's an incredible risk that Fatima takes, which they talk about, mm -hmm. but it really never comes to the fact that she would have been whipped or worse, like uh, right. this friend of hers was. And we don't see that. In the end, she gets away, you know, she runs away with Martine <laughs> and they go they off to, to some sort place. Of yeah, this happy ending where they kind of go off together to this sort of mystical place where everybody's going to be fine with this, you know, interfaith marriage. Where, if not in Toledo? Where, right. <laughs> There's a way to do it. The way to do it is that one of them has to at least sort of pretend to be the other faith, right? I mean, some, some, but like they cannot, there is nowhere where they can openly live as a married couple where he is a Christian and she's a Muslim. Right, unless she were his slave or something, right? Then right. In the, Which, but that's yeah. a totally different arrangement. I think that you know, in a in a kind of mudejar context, that is a context where Muslims are uh, subject citizens or subjects mm -hmm. uh, of the Christian crown, and they are subjects of of Castile. So they're not at all powerful. There could be a context, but it would have to be uh, essentially she has no 
community. She couldn't be part of the Muslim right. community and still be right. his wife or even or his mistress or whatever. The Christians might and accept her on the side, you know, as his concubine or slave or something. But they would never consider them to be married. Not in a proper sense. No, she would yeah. have to convert, right? She would yeah. have to, she would have to, they would accept her if she converted. Uh, and the same right. on the other side, if he converted to Islam, he yeah. could go live in the Muslim community. Right. But to maintain this tension, there's no no sort of context in which that could actually play out. It's really right. not yeah. in a happy way. So the ending is really sweet, how they finally get to run off together. And also it's implied that Blanca, his sister, Martin's sister, runs off or, you know, gets to get together with with his friend who's been who's grown up in the house uh, right. that, that they're finally going to get together Cristobal who's a sweet addition to the family finally they're going to get together which also is quite unrealistic in terms of the uh, the status differential right i mean cristobal is much lower status yeah absolutely you know he's uh he's a servant essentially he lives in their house as a a kind of domestic and they reference that. I think that's definitely something which is mm-hmm. referenced and is even more plausible as far as a plot twist that somehow right. there could be uh, a relationship or at least an affair between mm-hmm. people of different classes. Right. But that they're going to ride off into the sunset together at the end is that's Hollywood, I guess. <laughs> right. I mean, because I'm kind of fine with the idea that, you know, of all of these sexual romantic relationships happening and you know people having these feelings and being conflicted about these feelings uh in this very kind of often soap opera dramatic sort of way but uh that the idea that they have happy endings does not really fit into this context (laughs) this really is a soap opera isn't it it's just so completely a kind of ping-ponging between these moments of drama and release and tension Mm -hmm. tense and ridiculous music and then uh somehow everything is revealed to be okay or so and so is revealed to be <laughs> uh in cahoots with someone else and yes uh, it's it's all good or all bad and all drama yeah. we've got very also like soap opera mannerisms uh, we've got a lot of sort of swishing and flourishing of dresses and of capes <laughs> we have a lot of like long smoldering looks and intense looks and then people like look intensely at each other and then turn around and walk away very dramatically from each other we have a lot of smirking. Um, yes. Really, like the like the bishop and Diana, like really have these like amazing like smirk offs for a while. Yeah, that's really they're they're really good at that. Especially mm-hmm. Diana has these looks that kill, and then the archbishop is like this really sort of creepy automaton. Oh yes, uh, but yeah, it just has like these like yeah like 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 creepy smirking faces. <laughs> Shocking. It seems like Diana is, who's the, again, the lover slash rape victim slash concubine of both prince and king, and then the one that, that's abandoned in the dungeon at the end, that she she seems very malleable. Like, sometimes mm-hmm. she seems sweet and good. She just wants to find her way through the world, and, you know, she's looking out for her father, so she cuts a deal yeah. with the evil archbishop. To, right. But then you see that she's actually cutthroat, and she is never good. Nothing good comes out of her. (laughs) She's ultimately willing to do anything to protect herself. And she's full of betrayal, no matter where you go. So even though she's for a while, she's a victim, and then she's super sexualized and, and uh, shown with both king and prince, right, in these Mm -hmm. scenes. But then at the end, you see that she's just completely corrupt and evil. 
And so yeah. it makes sense that the evil archbishop is finally drawn to her and, you know, has yeah. this ultimate plan to send her away and have her be his little, like, sleeping, you know, companion right. off in the country. Ugh. That's a really interesting uh, sort of plot element yeah. that doesn't get developed, but he's like, right. I have some land, you can go live there, have the baby, and I'll come visit you from time to time. Like, uh, 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 no. Yeah, well, she ha- finally has the, the kind of courage to come back and say, no, you're disgusting, yeah. I'm not going to be your concubine. Right. Um, that's her but one sort moment of, of sort of clear-headed yeah. <laughs> yeah. resistance. Which does not end well for her, unfortunately. No. So uh, we we also we have a you know the kind of main overarching plot to some extent that to the extent that you can say that right is that we have this kind of big big conspiracy between us. We have the the Archbishop. We have the Conde de Miranda. Sancho is involved in this. Diana is sort of involved slash a pawn of this. And Abu Bark is involved in this. So this kind of hilarious, like, we both want war as Christians and Muslims. So we're going to team up to make sure that we can have war against each other. Yeah, bring down the whole kingdom with our plot. And that somehow it's going to play to their favor. Abu Bark right. will, will get you know, a whole chunk of land that he can somehow annex to Granada mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever right. is supposed to be his land. And then the Which Conde... Which seems so unrealistic that the Conde is essentially on board and agreeing to that. Right. He's like, yeah, Just... sure. You know, we'll give land back to the Muslims so I can have, you know, control of Toledo. And right. Like, that's rule ridiculous. The world. <laughs> I know. It's so ridiculous. The Conde is curious because, you know, the Count stands in for this this theme of corrupt aristocracy or the the tension between the aristocracy or the the sort of noble class and royalty and how there was definitely kind of tension or a competition for power between uh, the nobles and, and, you know, and the ruling Mm -hmm. class or the the Kings and and, and Alfonso the 10th himself was in many cases sort of in conflict with local nobles and Mm -hmm. tried to, make sure that he protected his own interests and controlled exactly how much kind of uh, benefit they got. And yet he depended on them for a lot of support and money. So all of those things are kind of plausible, but it's all wrapped up in one character, you know, this Count Miranda, who's ultimately super evil and is planning to take over the whole kingdom (laughs) and then, you know, cut a deal with the Muslim so that they both get away with, you know, a chunk of land and and a lot of power. And then, of course, supported by the archbishop, who's somehow going to be ultimate power, ultimately powerful in the background, too. Right. Which and, you know, and he's fine with like, ah, and like, you know, he because he spends so much of the time, right, being the kind of voice of, you know, of oppression of, you know, Muslims and of Jews, right, that he is very often kind of represented in that way. But that is also fine cutting a deal with uh, the Muslims and, you know, giving them back land as long as it'll kind of give him this power that he actually kind of seems like he sort of has anyway. Yeah, it's quite ridiculous. And totally not historical. I think we could go down this rabbit hole of talking about what it gets wrong. This is one of the things it gets way wrong, which is that Alfonso was not in conflict with the archbishop. The archbishops throughout his entire reign were essentially relatives or friends of his, literally relatives or friends. And he was never, ever um, at odds with them in this way. Um, And they weren't 
corrupt and they weren't evil and they weren't young either. The, these mm-hmm. guys that are like, <laughs> this guy, he looks like he's 12 and a half yeah. um, in this show. But besides that, the idea that somehow he's always looking to to take power from Alfonso, that he's sort of completely corrupt and that Alfonso's a pawn in his evil mm-hmm. plot this is not at all realistic because um, Alfonso was not at odds with the church in Castile and certainly not with the archbishops in Toledo, mm-hmm. um, who I think throughout his entire life, you know, were in his pocket. They were, they were friends of his or they were family yeah. members. It's something that is not realistic, as you said, and is also, I think, very much, uh, very much a trope of uh, medieval and early modern uh, film that, uh, that you have this evil and hypocritical leading churchman right who is this this person who's you know supposed to be this you know sincere figure of faith but who really mostly only cares about power and who has these kind of almost sort of imperialist ambitions right that uh that it's also kind of very you know very striking that you also kind of have these things with like how like how cardinal richelieu actually tends to kind of get depicted right that he's presented as this kind of enemy of the king in this way that you know also doesn't exactly make sense that when, while there are conflicts between monarchs and ecclesiastics, there are also many, many examples in pre-modern history of, you know, this, you know, intense cooperation between the two. And that's, you know, what we in fact should have here and do not have here. Yeah. I, I think that he's completely a caricature of this idea that somehow the churches, the medieval churches totally corrupt and Mm -hmm. always looking for more and more control. Um, But even on the like specific level and the way he's depicted and the church is depicted, this is one of the things that I think is curious. There's a a kind of stereotype about the medieval Spanish church or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, religious world, which is that it just basically becomes inquisition when it's not corrupt power, it's inquisition. And so here you have, especially in the early episodes, this archbishop seems to be pushing for <laughs> what is essentially uh, censorship and inquisition and saying, yeah. you know, we need to, like, we need a strong hand to weed out all of the heresy in our midst. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he, at one point in the beginning, uh, the first sort of plot story, which is of the, maybe the first four episodes about this book the so-called uh, right. wisdom of Solomon that is leading to the murders of uh, translators. I think that that whole idea that there's a, a book that he says should be on the book. It is on the list of banned books. He says, this is ridiculous. Of course, there is no list of banned books uh, no. uh, in, you know, <laughs> in the 13th century, uh, the church has no uh, sort of right. <laughs> list of prohibited books at this point. Although later, you know, in the 16th century, sure. Right. So here we, we have kind of like two ideas that are conflated in the popular mm-hmm. mind that there is the power to censor and that the, the church is actually really busy censoring material constantly. Right. And, and then, you know, you're stepping out of line. People are constantly being tortured and forced to renege and convert and whatever. Um, so there's a, a kind of lack of chronology or a, or a sort of ahistorical representation, yeah. which is completely um, anachronistic. But mm-hmm. I can see where it comes from, you know, the, this idea yeah. that they 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 know that an inquisition in Spain is founded at some point and that, you know, they do torture people and burn them at the stake and that there is a list of banned books at some point somewhere. Mm-hmm. We've heard about it. And <laughs> so it all gets mashed together. And so the archbishop right. is ultimately powerful and ready to censor this evil book. 
and also that they kind of want to mash together these ideas of a sort of, you know, witch persecution or persecution of magical practices, that then that's getting sort of mashed together with uh, anti-Judaism and accusations, you know, against against Jews as Jews in this kind of sort of bizarre manner, right, that they are these kind of ritualized murders associated with this sort of magical or occult book, that uh, there is an accusation made that, you know, they're, that, you know, these are sort of Kabbalistic practices and that therefore, you know, the murderer must be, you know, must be a Jew, right? And Abraham is like, is accused of, you know, being, being responsible, which is sort of bizarre, of course, given that this is a period where Jews are actually accused of rich, of a ritual kind of murder of the, you know, that Jews are accused of the ritualized murder of Christian children at this point also starting to include the accusation that they then are not only kind of recreating the the, the murder of Christ but that they're also using blood in the you know making of matzah or for other ritual purposes and it seems like such a bizarre choice to me that instead of having that to be the accusation they kind of invent this sort of bizarre dramatic thing with this book that seems very kind of out of like the da Vinci code yeah <laughs> very which, funny yeah seems kind of part soap opera drama and part maybe also kind of wanting to sort of anachronistically sort of bring in this sort of magic witchcraft element uh, a couple hundred years up. Well, I I tried to figure out how they came to this. Like, what is this book? It's like in the first couple episodes, that's this book that's everybody's looking for in the school of translators, which we have to talk about the school of translators, but um, the school of translators in Toledo has this book that's prohibited and yet it leads to all of these murders so i was trying to figure out you know did they completely invent this out of whole cloth or what are they what are they looking into and i decided it's on the one hand a reference maybe to the fact that alfonso himself was interested in books of magic yeah. and had this one book the gayat al-hakim in arabic translated as picatrix somewhere in the 1250s, right? Early part of his reign, he was mm-hmm. translating. But this is, again, you know, it's not Kabbalistic and it's not, you know, it doesn't right. have secret ritual murders or anything, but it was maybe something that was known. And then later on in the 16th century, there actually was a book called The Key of Solomon, the Miftah right. Solomon, which is completely not uh, connected with Spain, first of oh, all, no. Italy. And it's, again, in the 16th century, much, much later that it becomes popular. And it also doesn't really, you know, at all speak about murders either. But it's Kabbalistic and it has kind of this, I I found this because I was realizing this is this, this star that they're all being branded with. The image of this actually matches the image, I think, from if I, you know, I tried to freeze the frame and look at it Mm -hmm. and it seems to match this popular image of this book that floated around. So I'm imagining that the script, the script writers like looked into a book, the history of magic or something. And then they found Mm -hmm. this that said Kabbalah and they said, Ooh, you know, the magical book of Solomon, let's do that. And they call it, they call it Mishle Solomon, right? That's what they actually say. That's what Solomon says, which is just Proverbs, right? That's the book of Proverbs in the Bible. Which is hilarious. So that's the evil book of magic, but I think that there yeah, it's a mashup. Proverbs, uh, right? I mean, I don't like proverbs either. So, you know, it's fair definitely, enough. you know, you might die of boredom, but you're not going to, you know. But anyway, I think that that's that's what the reference is to, or at least what they're yeah. trying to put together. The idea that there's some sort of kabbalistic ritual that could lead to these murders, but then it, they also must be completely plagiarizing the name of the rose and the idea of a murder mystery. Yes. 
you know, in the Middle Ages based on a book that somehow yeah. this book is leading to murders and we've got to uncover the plot. Right. There's the name of the rose element. As I said, there's also very much this like Da Vinci Code angels and demons kind of oh, yeah. element, right? Of this sort of like, it has to be this ritualized series of murders and, you know, you can figure out what the pattern of the murders is and that's going to, you know, yeah. so. <laughs> but I think it ultimately plugs back into this anti-Judaism that, that mm-hmm. the show traffics in without at all seeming to recognize. I think it, it's, right. it's not intending to because it's trying to represent Jews and Christians as buddies through the, right. the depiction, you know, of their friendship between Solomon and, um, and, and, you know, his friendship and how he comes around the house and is happy to have breakfast with them and everybody's friendly. But I think that, that deep down there's this idea that the Jews are sort of dabbling in, in the occult um, mm-hmm. that Kabbalah is magic and that it somehow is, uh, is could be responsible to Abraham, even though he's innocent of all of this, he knows completely what's going on. He's like, Oh yeah, that right. book, that's a series of murders. And I know what the next one's right. going to be. I could tell you yeah, all that about there it. are no, there are no actual Jewish characters ultimately involved in those murders. It's of course, you know, our, our sort of standard selection of conspirators, but that, of course, it still makes sense that like, well, yes, but this is a Jewish magical book that tells you how to ritually murder people. That's not ever questioned the idea <laughs> that, of course, like that sort of book exists. Sure. Yeah. The, the Jews and, have these books. Right. So, so I was reminded, I, I don't at all think that the script writers were informed enough to to be referencing this, but there is a kind of sort of background that one could draw on to imagine this, which is that in the prologues to a lot of Alfonso's books that he translates, so Alfonso X did a number, you know, many translations from Arabic and into Castilian. And in the prologues, which fascinate me, in fact, I'm, you know, I've been trying to write about them now for Mm -hmm. a couple of years, because I'm interested in how translation is actually represented, what it means to him to translate. And there's a constant theme of Alfonso representing himself in real, this is real, uh, in his, really in his books, not in the show, as somehow unearthing ancient knowledge that's been almost Mm -hmm. lost or that's been forgotten. And there's this, repeatedly, he says, this book, such and such, whatever I'm translating, he says this in the Lapidario, his book of stones, which is translated Mm -hmm. from Arabic. He says this in a couple of his other translations, including the Picatrix. He says, you know, this book was in, was, was an Arabic book that was lost mm-hmm. for a long time. And in at least one place and maybe two, he says, it was kept hidden in the house of a Jew. And now it's been discovered by my translator and is being brought to light. And now I, mm-hmm. Alfonso, am you know, sort of responsible for bringing it back to society or, or civilization. Yeah. This idea that there's a secret lore that comes from the Arabs and it's ancient uh, or it's preserved by the Arabs and it's ancient, but it's hidden deliberately by Jews. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll find it in the house of a Jew and they deliberately tra- tried to keep it from the world. But Alfonso is somehow kind of overcoming this with his translation. Mm-hmm. There's this interesting tension in, in how Alfonso yeah. paints his own translation projects. And I think at least it's a parallel. It's certainly not something I think the script writers knew about and knew enough right. to draw from, but it's curious how this real background might trickle down yeah. into a representation of Alfonso X, somehow uh, resurrecting the stuff that the Jews are keeping secret, yeah. their secret cabal. The other thing we've already mentioned of the Jews uh, trafficking in kind of the treasure of 
the Templars. Right. Oh, this other plot series somehow in the, the middle, the middle episodes where there's the treasure of the Templars somehow hidden mm-hmm. in one of the churches of, <laughs> of Toledo. This is a total ripoff sure. from the, the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, right. how Harrison Ford goes down and finds where it is on the map through the sun shining at a certain point of day through his little yeah. lens. And that's the spot in the town. Anyway, so he uncovers where the secret treasure is supposed to be, but it's not there. And then the last scene, this throwaway scene, when uh, Abraham and a bunch of other Jews are carrying away the treasure, yeah. the ark, and he says, make sure nobody finds it, right? Right. <laughs> gotta, and the, the Jews are really concerned with keeping the money of the world hidden. Right. Because, yeah. you know, that's what they do. They're, you know, that's, that's the what Jews do. Of bankers, they hide, they hide all the riches for themselves. Yep. They they hoard treasures and lie about it to the Christians. Uh, big even big even their subjects, friends, yep. right? Even yep. their friends. So that that's what's so kind of unacknowledged in this is that mm-hmm. uh, even though it's supposed to be representing peace and love between Jews and Christians through this friendship, and Alfonso wanting to be uh, pro-Jewish in a lot of ways, still we we kind of have this subtext which plays on stereotypes. Uh, this anti-Jewish. Yeah way of thinking about villainy mm-hmm. and, and corruption and meanness all being still represented in these Jewish characters. Right. Which does have interesting parallels, right? With, you know, on the one hand, there are these kind of interesting ways in which you kind of get a sense of there being sort of intellectual interactions at the court of Alfonso and in the context of these translations between Jews and Christians and Muslims. But at the same time, I mean, if you read a Alfonso's, you know, legislation, the Siete Partidas, uh, if you read the Cantigas de Santa Maria, which I'm sort of leading into saying something else about, um, these sort of stories of uh, mir- these sort of poetic stuff, you know, stories of miracles of the Virgin Mary, uh, they also, you know, demonstrate this real hostility toward both Jews and Muslims. And so there is this kind of interesting tension uh, that I'm not sure I'd say I believe it's deliberate on the part of the uh, the you know writers of the show, but that it is a kind of parallel that the show does have with uh, with historical reality. Yeah, this I is a theme think, that, yeah. that definitely comes up uh, in when I teach this material. My students often notice this kind of uh, two faced rhetoric, where on the one hand there's talk of wanting to have Jews, Christians, and Muslims in the court of Alfonso and translation and the riches of these other cultures. And then on the other hand, you have these very aggressive measures and anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim kind of uh, very concrete measures being taken and laws being passed. And so the representation is very confusing to them. They don't know mm-hmm. that because they want a simple answer. They want to know, right. is it, you know, is it good or is it bad for the Jews and the Muslims? Were they friends or were they not friends? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to conceive of this kind of relationship as being one that's completely unequal, yeah. essentially prejudiced, and yeah. yet still somehow peaceful. Um, yeah. So I think that that's interesting that it's in the show because I definitely don't think they meant it to be, but it does right. represent this, this, two-faced idea of peace and uh, harmony in the court and yet still prejudice and anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually also will will often kind of use in both, uh, you know, courses on the Iberian Peninsula and in more Jewish history focused courses, I'll actually kind of use the court of Alfonso X as a kind of really interesting example of that, because I think it's something that's applicable more broadly. But I think Alfonso has such kind of good examples of, you know, this kind of single person being so involved in kind of both sides of those uh, of that, uh, that kind of two faced 
way of being with uh, with Jews and with Muslims. Translations really interesting. Well, the whole representation of books in this series is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. What books mean in the court of Alfonso? We do get references to Alfonso's actual works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like the Cantigas, they sent them. Yes, right. And I find it hilarious. And you know, and so you know, he you know wrote perhaps at least some of the Cantigas, right? I mean, I think you know people are still kind of debating, right? I believe like exactly you know whether Alfonso is the author of some or all or none or whatever, but. Yeah. We have a couple of scenes where we have just this pre-illustrated codex of the Cantigas <laughs> de Santa Maria, and he's just composing the like text of it kind of on the side, yeah. which is hilarious <laughs> because it's just like such a deeply and intensely inaccurate representation of uh, of book production. <laughs> Like you would not have written into a bound codex like that. You would not have, you know, had like the illustrations done and then the nice blank page to do the writing on on the other side. <laughs> Just absolutely hilarious. But this is, you know, what the, the king seems to do in his off hours. You know, he's mm-hmm. left alone in his chambers. He just dabbles a little more on his songbook, mm-hmm. writing directly into his beautiful codex, which you yep. know, uh, <laughs> took There's, dozens yeah. of uh, different you know, collaborative uh, (laughs) experts. And yet here he is fiddling around in his bedroom with it. Yep. Just, yeah. That's awesome. In his bedroom every now and then he'll write a few lines. We've also got in his bedroom in the background, there's this, um, there's uh, this, uh, this painting that actually looks, I think like it's sort of a blow up of one of the uh, scenes from the Cantigas de Santa Maria. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. (laughs) The, the decoration overall in this series is hilarious because it's so cheap and like the production value of this whole series is so low and i was reading some some reviews popular reviews of this on spanish websites too and this is the thing that a lot of people wrote about everyone is annoyed by how cheap uh it's saying like everything looks like paper mache and kind of yeah just uh almost like a school play um, mm-hmm. The backgrounds of these, of the court and uh, the so-called palace and everything, it looks mm-hmm. just super cheapo. And of course, at the same time, it's informed by, it's like a collage of images from Alfonso's world yeah. or from Toledo. And so like you have like literally blow up images of from the Cantigas or images that seem to be taken from other historical manuscripts of, you know, images yeah. of Spanish kings elsewhere other mm-hmm. miniatures. And I think a couple of the images seem like they're representations of what look like images from uh, the Church of San Roman in Toledo, mm-hmm. where you have also depictions, kind of like line drawing depictions of kings and scenes like that. That seems to be in the background sometimes. Yeah. Uh, also, g- random chunks of Arabic and and mm-hmm. pieces of, of, you know, language on the wall that's sort of was supposed to look like Maybe the Alhambra or the Alcazar of Seville, but right. um, and you it, see that architecturally too, right? That yeah, there's this kind of pastiche of uh, you know Iberian Islamic architectural styles are just kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that it speaks to what that stuff might mean to the mm-hmm. writers and producers yeah. uh, or the the audience. I, I, I geeked out a little bit in preparing for this, looking at the introduction, the sort of Mm -hmm. montage and the introduction to this show, each time the episode plays, there's like a cliffhanger scene and then it plays the the opening montage, which is like Toledo, you know, Cruce de Destinos. But in that, it 
it's this flowing animation uh, with music and it flows from a, across a kind of landscape of different snippets of images that are drawn and some of them are kind mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, definitely taken from existing books, but it's a mishmash of languages. You see in the background uh -huh. kind of yeah. snippets of Arabic, snippets of Hebrew, snippets mm -hmm. of Latin books flying through, kind of all uh, rearranged. And then it comes to this kind of cursive -y, uh, calligraphy image of Toledo. Mm -hmm. And I was really, I, I, stopped each frame and tried to see like what books are they looking at and I was able to identify yeah. at least the oh. chunk of Hebrew in the background definitely comes from Maimonides right okay um it's it's a little snippet of a of a of a book and I couldn't I didn't know this I just you know googled it and found mm -hmm. these chunks of text in Maimonides right uh and his his um discussion of commandments right the the mm -hmm. book of commandments or discussion of commandments the positive commandments but then the other stuff is really hilarious and there's one at one point uh, in arabic it says just the word christians and then at another point it says in hebrew the word muslims but they screwed it up and the actual <laughs> image puts the hebrew backwards so instead of actually saying it as it should you know right to left it's it somehow is like inverted but the show oh, i'm gonna have to pause oh. and look for this i wasn't paying that much attention to be honest during the credits uh. it's really funny because it's uh clearly they wanted it to say sort of jews christians muslims yeah. you know little of this little of that and yet they didn't know quite enough to actually do it right the most egregious thing is and it's quite large the, this big word that's supposed to be Muslims in Hebrew flying across the screen, but it's, but it's backwards because right. they don't know okay. what they're actually doing. So I think it's, that speaks to the larger <laughs> effort yeah. that they're trying to do, which is to mm -hmm. have this pastiche of, uh, of what is Jews, Christians, and Muslims in Toledo, but they mm -hmm. don't quite know what they're doing. And it's completely drawn from a touristy, almost Disney-esque kind of yeah. imagery. It reminded me a lot. This whole thing reminded me a lot of what I'm seeing in this new theme park in Toledo that's recently opened. So uh, this, I don't think this is far made long before the theme park was ever planned, but this new theme park that opened in Spain, Puy, de Fou, Puy du Fou, which is, mm -hmm. I think, a French theme park company that opened in first in France. Now they've opened one in Spain. Puy du Fou, España, has in Toledo, ironically enough, uh, or fittingly enough, they've opened this theme park that has lots of medieval scenes, including, I think, the court in Toledo, or what's supposed mm -hmm. to be the court in Toledo. And it's, you know, these recreations of knights and uh, interactions and jousts and stuff like that, as well as interactions with Columbus and the Catholic kings at the end of the 15th century. And, uh -huh. and then uh, I think the idea that somehow, you know, you put a couple flags on the wall and maybe have a few arches and a throne, and then you've got a medieval scene that right. uh, can represent th these really, really sort of rough ideas about what happened in the past. It's interesting to think what does the medieval past mean to, mm -hmm. to viewers uh, and producers? And I really zoned in on the, the very end of this show. I don't know if you mm -hmm. paid or noticed the very last thing that we hear in this whole show is this voiceover where Alfonso's voice comes in and says uh, a kind of almost like lesson for history, right? Like at the very end, we hear his voice. And it's really interesting because it, 
what it says, it seems to be speaking to the viewers or in general to, I don't know, historians or, or, you know, the popular mind. But it basically says we can't forget uh, what happened in the past. And I think um, I can sort of translate it on the spot here if I can find where I put it. Um, It basically says a town or a pueblo is only as good uh, as as it knows history. No, un pueblo que no mm-hmm. conoce su pasado no es nada. A, uh-huh. a, a people or a land that uh, a civilization that doesn't know its past is nothing. We only uh-huh. are what we were once. Solo somos lo que alguna vez fuimos. And then the final word of the whole show is: we promise to always remember, so that nothing falls into oblivion. And I think that there's this this kind of like lesson for the show, which is supposed to be that, uh, you know, we're resurrecting uh, this memory that in the past we had Jews, Christians, and Muslims mm-hmm. getting along or interacting. And that's our past. Right. And that if we forget that, you know, then we're going to somehow go down the wrong path. So there's this tension between kind of like nationalism and mm-hmm. seeing Spain uh, in a in a Francoistic sort of Right. Or maybe a Vox sort of way, as like we are uh, the Christian reconquest nation, or we promise never to forget these elements of our past. You know, we're only as good as what we once were. So I, mm-hmm. I, I find that to be strange, really bizarre kind of like yeah. voice of the king <laughs> ending mm-hmm. the show. But also, it helps me ex- understand what is this show for, uh, and it's this right. popular idea of of harmony or or religious interaction that we call convivencia um, or that is in the popular mind come mm-hmm. to take on this. Cause there is this, uh, this tension too, right. Between how on the one hand, there is this kind of celebration of the, you know, three faiths existing in relative harmony of this idea of convivencia, which I will kind of talk about more in a moment. And I would say also how convivencia is very much uh, used for the purposes of uh, both a kind of idealized historical national memory and also for tourism. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. That you can very, very much see essentially like Conviventhia makes money. And in particular, I've also, I've always found it very striking as somebody coming from a Jewish studies background in particular, how it's, I think, very much used to kind of market actual tours and sites of Spain to Jewish tourists, I think is really fascinating. Um, uh, and like the amount of like Hebrew, to- of like tours in Hebrew that you hear <laughs> in Toledo, in Girona is fascinating. And there is this kind of touristic celebration of this past, which then coexists with, they're not, like that not really being a present that there's really not much of a Jewish community in Spain. There is something of a Muslim community, but there are also undoubtedly a lot of tensions with the, you know, Muslim, you know, I mean, this this is not a Muslim community that goes back to the eighth century. I mean, this is a Muslim community that is, you know, immigrants and there are the, you know, tensions and the same kinds of tensions in Spain as there are uh, other places in Europe regarding that. And this kind of coexists uncomfortably with this, celebration of uh, the past. Yeah, I think it's a really, I mean, it gets at this show's desire to present an image of the past at any cost that fits what is essentially a modern tourist 
understanding of, of Spain's past. So it doesn't want to be conservative. It wants to be liberal. It wants to represent this as the land of three faiths, right? Where Jews, Christians, and Muslims learned to finally get along. And this is seen as Alfonso's vision in this show. He's presented in the beginning as sort of, you know, striking a deal of peace with great difficulty uh, with the evil Abu Bark and says, you know, we are, I, I love the, the way it's presented too, because it's like he stands up and makes this kind of declaration, you know, we are a city, an open city. We respect all creeds, <laughs> he says. Mm -hmm. Respetamos todas las creencias, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we respect all beliefs and all cultures. And I think that there's this, this complete liberal uh, mindset behind that, yeah. that, that this is a good thing from Spanish past and we should resurrect it or we should preserve right. it. But the idea of it comes completely out of a tourist sort of money-making yeah. desire to, to sell this to the public. Uh, and certainly this show is a money-making venture, you know, yeah. above yeah. all else. So to have this kind of, it's, it's interesting to see how this desire then plays out in a kind of a very weak historical framework. There's so much that's ahistorical about this show. Like it's almost not even, it's supposed to take place in the past, but it's almost not even that. It's almost like a, an alternative universe fantasy that happens to have characters from 13th century Toledo. So certain names and certain people who actually existed, but the things they do are so completely outside of real history that it's, it's hard to know where to start to actually talk about reality. One of the most egregious things I think that we have to say or note is that the, there are two sons here, Sancho and Fernando. <laughs> and that's real. That's true. There were two sons. There are actually more, but okay. So we have two sons. The first we've, we've decided on two. <laughs> there are two guys. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a bit of a rivalry between them in real life. Okay. And that's about as far as it goes. But in reality, as far as what's actually real in, in this show, they've switched the order of which son is which. So which that seems bizarre to me as a choice. It's completely bizarre, but I think that they, they started to, they must have started to construct this idea that like, oh, we have to have a rivalry. Okay. So the younger one has to be a little bit inept. And so we've got to, you know, we'll make him the desired son but he's got to be younger. And then they had to follow it and add more. It's like adding one lie to, to fix a, a previous lie. And right. so the next lie has to be, oh, they had a different mother, right? right. They weren't both the children uh, of uh, the queen. In fact, one of them. So now there's a rivalry between Sancho and his stepmother because she right. never truly loved him, right? He's supposed She wouldn't to let him hold Fernando when he was a baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so then this like the evil stepmother kind of uh, topos comes in. But Fernando is her beloved son. And in truth, of course, Fernando is the firstborn, not the secondborn. Sancho's the secondborn. And Fernando was the beloved son from the beginning. And always he was the heir of uh, Alfonso. Which makes sense because he was the oldest. He was the oldest. So he, he was the, the firstborn. It was there was no doubt, and there was no rivalry about that. That like Sancho in real life had no no hope until Fernando died, tragically. And I think that that was a very tragic and hard uh, experience for both Alfonso uh, and the Queen. I think that they were both, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
devastated by this loss mm-hmm. and, because he really was their their beloved firstborn and he was the hope of the kingdom and everything. And so the rivalry comes in real life when uh, Alfonso wants Fernando's son to be the right. heir, uh, whose name was Alfonso. So Alfonso de la Cerda, Fernando de la Cerda was his son. His right. son, Alf- Alfonso de la Cerda, is the one he thought should be the true heir. Whereas Sancho, the second son of Alfonso, was the one who butted in and became the real king, right? And kind of gets the support of the nobility, right? And which seems in part because, I mean, you sort of want somebody who's an adult. Right. (laughs) Um. It's an interesting transformation because there was a problem about who was going to be heir. There Mm -hmm. was, you know, this problem of like, which of the two sons? Sancho actually in real life was... A terrible disappointment to his father and confronted his father. And, you know, in fact, at the end of his life, you know, he was responsible for kind of isolating him in, in Seville and essentially taking over, right? Taking over the crown but with his mother's help. So it wasn't like the queen Mm -hmm. was on Alfonso's side. She abandoned him too, basically. So Alfonso was isolated in Seville at the end of his life. That's another ahistorical thing that we have here is that Alfonso is quite old in this show. He seems on death's door all the way through having heart attacks and constantly collapsing. And, you know, you don't know if he's going to live. He has a lot of, the the (laughs) sex is very rough on him. Yeah, I know. He, He gets excited and then has like falls to the ground and has a heart attack or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> which With is a couple of different women right more than once this happens he definitely you know is old and so in real life in in history when alfonso was old he was already and when he was dying he was already in seville he he was far mm-hmm. away from toledo he didn't live in toledo or have permanent court in toledo at all after the very beginning of his reign. So this idea that they're just seated in Toledo, always having court in the same place, right. completely ridiculous. Toledo, right, as the city. They also all know because they want to have, you know, Alfonso as this kind of aged figure, but they want, you know, Violante to be kind of young and attractive enough that she's uh, plausible as this love interest for Rodrigo, which is also a bizarre choice that they have the, that kind of side. Yeah, that, that whole thing is really interesting and how they're so, they're, they're just so virtuous. They resist throughout the whole show right. and never actually get together except for a few kisses, despite right. their true, you know, true desire. True so love. that's an interesting thing. But the, the king himself being old and, you know, dying, he would have already been in Seville and he yeah. didn't have a heart problem. He had cancer. We know right. that he had, you know, face cancer or mm-hmm. something like it. And he would have, you know, been distorted and had a big tumor yeah. on the side of his head. And the idea that somehow it's all happening in Toledo in general is implausible. But also mm-hmm. that if this is all supposed to be happening at the end of his life, somehow in, you know, you would imagine the 1280s, I guess, mm-hmm. if he's that old, because he dies in 1284, that he would have definitely not been anywhere near none of this would have been playing out fernando the true son was long dead sancho had already taken the crown everything was kind of basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, a done deal and and alfonso was bereft and alone right his beloved illegitimate daughter was the only Mm -hmm. one who really stuck by him right so all of that's out of uh out, out of i don't know what fantasy but why they decided to twist it around like that to make better drama it just doesn't make sense right and it seems almost like they were sort of like okay so we have the conflict between you know sancho and his nephew and then they were like well maybe it's too confusing if it's his nephew let's make it his brother and then like well but he can't be like a kid let's make let's sort of age him up and 
all kinds of all kinds yeah, of yeah all dis- sorts of odd choices they also you know um lengthen uh, or widen the uh the age gap uh, between alfonso and violante that's about uh 15 years in reality and in terms of the actors ages it's 30 and honestly looks like it could be more yeah because i think yeah. really kind of trying <laughs> to make alfonso you know play alfonso as ancient like alfonso in this show looks significantly older in this show that came out in 2012 than like a picture of juan diego now yeah so, <laughs> so i mean For watching sure. the show it looks like there could be a 40 year age difference between those two actors yeah i think it's a really strange choice just to the, why they decided to end uh, or put the show during his the end of his life uh, why they decided to have the sons be represented this way. It just, it's sort of baffling. It's baffling because it, it completely opens the show up to being dismissed by a lot of people who just yeah. watch it and say, well, I know that much <laughs> that's wrong. Right. And why did they do that? It makes no sense. And, and then have to, sort of to have them killing each other yeah. too. The, the Sancho is, you know, ready to stab his brother or he's in mm-hmm. cahoots with the nobles to, to do what he seems like such a pathetic guy who's he's first sad about this uh, about that diana the the woman and then he's uh, in cahoots with the evil archbishop and uh, and the nobles and he's willing to kill his brother but ultimately somebody managed, who's sort of right? constantly yeah and he's also somebody who's sort of somebody who's sort of constantly smirking throughout this series oh yeah he's one of the king smirkers in this like you see him and and like the one-liners he says to diana more than once right she comes and begs at his feet and then he somehow gives her these devastating one-liners about how right. <laughs> how she's just nothing but trash uh, yeah. i think it's it's <laughs> it's maybe funny or interesting the first time and then it gets really tiresome by the fifth, yeah sixth time they do this yeah. little encounter so the show is quite repetitive that way like a like a soap yeah. opera the dramas come in little cycles and, and 13 episodes is a lot to get through i was really okay. glad to be done with this even though i've watched yeah. it now three times all the way through or now maybe three and a half because of teaching mm-hmm. I, it's like watching the whole thing from start to finish was so tiresome yeah there's there's a lot that's very repetitive i mean similarly like martin and fatima like they kind of like keep like they go back and forth so much between we love each other no it can never be i'm a muslim <laughs> you're a christian and then back to oh we love each other and you know and it's like it's very much like I understand caught feelings of, you know, feeling conflicted, but uh, it's a little, it's clearly like they really just want to kind of string it out and make sure that, you know, we've got kind of constant conflict to kind of fill, fill the space. Uh, It does seem like actually they probably could have gotten the job done in about half the length of, uh, yeah, yeah. Than what they did. I think that the whole episodes, like, it seems like there were three or four, sort of mini plot elements so there's like the murder mystery with the book the the jewish killer book and then there's this whole plot with kind of the french and how they were going to declare war because (laughs) that's another completely ridiculous made-up idea that you know the that fernando was betrothed to this 
French girl, uh, or from where's she from? From it's from a the, Aquitaine. Aqu- she's from Aquitaine, and so yeah. And it turns out she's ugly, and at the last minute, you know, they pull out of and the that's deal. The big drama, right? Is also that like you know he like sees some he like sees somebody who he thinks is a woman he's supposed to be engaged to, who's very conventionally attractive, and then the like big you know drama slash humor is that she steps aside, and actually the person who's like not especially conventionally attractive is the one that he's supposed to marry, and this is hilarious. Right. And this is like a tragedy and that we realize it's all a plot and that ultimately it will strip. Somehow it plays into the desires of uh, of the nobles and the archbishop, right. too. But this is enough to declare war. And so uh, we have, you know, them, sure. Navarre and Aquitaine going to war against Toledo, which is supposed to stand in for the entire kingdom. And they pull uh, pull back from the brink of war. So that's like mini plot series number two. And then there's the the. The, the third plot series, I think of like the Muslim at the end of the Muslims getting their cathedral or getting their, mm-hmm. their mosque taken away for the cathedral. Right. This is not totally historically inaccurate. There, you know, was a mosque yeah. that was uh, taken over, but that was actually taken over before Alfonso ever became king. Right. I mean, that was relatively soon after the, uh, the kind of Christian takeover of Toledo. And yeah, and they, you know, they were definitely building on the spot that had of a former mosque, but like, this was not an issue (laughs) in the days of of Alfonso. So the whole idea that he, that Alfonso has to build a cathedral, and he said, like, he gets a line, you know, he gets a a note from Rome saying that this is his, his duty as a Christian, this is all ridiculous, because of course, you know, the cathedral is being constructed during his lifetime, it's already been far it's far along and he's not getting notes from rome saying he has to do things like that so all of that plot element is completely silly but that seems like the third one the last episode seems to come full circle with the beginning in a pretty good way i think they could have cut out the the whole french right no marriage offense plot line which took up four episodes oh and then the templars we forgot there's that oh yeah they definitely could have ditched the templars could have ditched the French and the Templars completely and shortened this by five episodes. And that would have been yeah. more pleasant. Yeah. It's, they make some odd choices. Um, <laughs> Historia et veritas. But if we can, uh, if we can say a few words actually about, so, uh, you know, I usually do this kind of, you know, discussion of a historical event or phenomenon. We already touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to talk about this kind of concept of conviventia, which literally means living together, but often gets evoked, especially in a popular context uh, to imply this sort of interfaith harmony. On the one hand, I think this show is interesting in that it has living together as something that is in fact kind of contested and complicated. I think then it does sort of weird things in terms of the like, well, there are like mean fundamentalists uh, or like general scheming nasty people against the, you know, the good guys who want everybody to, you know, exist in harmony, which is obviously not in fact quite how it played out. But I do think that there is a kind of interesting way in which it sort of has the ways in which it's contested, but it kind of does this odd move, which feels very much like it's coming out of contemporary liberal ideals, as opposed to medieval realities, where it's presented as a goal or ideal, as opposed to a pragmatic everyday reality, or at least a goal or ideal that some individuals have. Yeah, I I think it's interesting on multiple levels, because the idea of convivencia is a popular 20th century idea mm-hmm. that has 
become, it's sort of trickled down into the popular understanding of the past. And I think that plays directly to what the last line of the show seems to be pointing to like, Oh, we, we people, we Spaniards have a duty to remember this past because it was tolerant or we, you know, we had a moment of greatness. And I think that the idea that this was a thing in the middle ages um, that people actually thought about it is, is of course wrong. The word itself was never used in the middle ages. The concept itself doesn't match any concept, any modern concept of uh, what we would call you know, tolerance or even multiculturalism. Yeah. Um, it's it's a different kind of of pluralism, you might say, in the Middle Ages, where yeah, there are multiple groups, and that's what makes uh, Iberia interesting is that they did have Jews, Christians, and Muslims in different configurations. But it doesn't at all uh, work to explain it in terms of modern liberal ideals of equality uh, or tolerance, because that's not right. how that's not how things were structured. Things were very vertical, uh, very hierarchical. Um, there was never a doubt about which of these groups was in charge at any one time, and what the status, legal and religious, was of the other groups within their uh, territories. So there was no uh, kind of idea that, like when Alfonso says, uh, we want an open and tolerant city. That's, a That's quote. simply not what anybody would have said. It makes no sense. You know, a tolerant city makes no sense. But also, uh, we, we respect all beliefs and all religions. It's, you know, an, an anachronism on multiple levels. Yes. The idea that we respect all beliefs doesn't make sense. And also, the just the, the use of the word, <laughs> we respect all religions. Like, then, it, it's, no. it's a modern liberal ideal. And where, where does it come from? Like, in the 20th century, this, this term originally originates to describe essentially uh, linguistic diversity in the peninsula. Mm -hmm. So it starts, uh, even though this term had been used before, this is something I've written about in the past, the the kind of history of this word, convivencia, this term does exist in the colonial period uh, to talk about Spaniards and natives living together, Mm -hmm. literally like sharing a house. It becomes a thing only in the 20th century when it's, it's used by Ramon Menendez Pidal, the great medieval uh, philologist, to talk about what he calls the sort of side-by-side existence of different Romance dialects. Mm-hmm. Um, convivencia de normas lingüísticas, right? This kind of like cohabitation, so to speak, yeah. uh, of different types of Romance. So this is before the standardization of any one You've got Castilian and Leonese and Aragonese mm-hmm. and, you know, Asturiano or whatever is a form of Leonese. And you've got lots of other ones in between that are kind of like hybrid versions of these besides Gallego and Catalan, whatever. So I was going to say, he, you know, not even including, of course, you know, the crown of Aragon where they're speaking, you know, things that, you know, Catalan, which, uh, you know, in, but, you know, which doesn't matter because it's not the same kingdom at this point. So Right. But even in uh, even in Castile León or in the center right. of the peninsula anyway, or the north of the peninsula, he, he says, you know, there's convivencia de normas lingüísticas. And this idea that there's a, a cohabitation of different ways of speaking is also very competitive, right? These norms are meant to be, he uses Darwinian ideas of like mm-hmm. the strongest, of, of the fittest of these dialects wins out over the yeah. others. So there's a weeding process. So it's his student, Américo Castro, who in 1948, uses this term in a, in a sort of cultural studies way, again, not to indicate tolerance in any sense, right? Not in a liberal sense at all, but just to describe plurality, the idea that this is a complex mm-hmm. society that's uh, not 
one religious sort of a dominant religious idea, but that it has multiple levels built into it for a long time and that these change configurations and that this is constitutive of really like the reality of society in Iberia that makes it different Mm -hmm. from uh, other places in Europe. And we can't understand Spanish history or medieval Iberian history, histories without taking this plurality into account. But it still is Mm -hmm. not quite what we think of when we say, you know, today you'll see this term used as like the, the festival of peace and convivencia or something, and you'll have a a kind of celebration of three religions. It doesn't become that until quite a a lot later. And it, Mm -hmm. and I'd say in a scholarly way, it's never been that no scholars have really thought about convivencia as a kind of liberal ideal. They've, they've always fought against this from the beginning. It never was proposed as meaning tolerance and peace. It was always proposed as meaning like this complex tension. And even, you know, Maria Rosa Menocal's book, which is often claimed to be the book that has that kind of rosy attitude toward convivencia, is really talking kind of very particularly about certain kinds of interactions in the context of intellectual culture. And is really not making the claim that society and was, you know, constantly kind of harmonious or that there wasn't such a thing as hierarchy or anything along those lines. Right. And she never uses the words. I mean, she, throughout her whole uh, career, Maria Rosa Menocal uses the words convivencia like three times. It's just not part of her vocabulary. And I think that the the concepts somehow make it into the popular mind in in a way or into the popular representation somehow it seems like in the 1980s, that's mm-hmm. when the, the term really seems to take off as a popular ideal that somehow convivencia is like the three, the land of the three faiths. Maybe this culminated yeah. in 1992 with uh, the the sort of celebration or the the fifth centenary of the uh, 1492. Uh, mm-hmm. But somewhere around there, this is when I was becoming a student and a medievalist. So I sort of witnessed it happening. And part of my whole education has been realizing what they're talking about and realizing what's wrong with it and how this popular yeah. ideal of uh, the medieval past has somehow been, has made mm-hmm. it to me and that my interest in it uh, yeah. has led me to sort of actually study what it is and figure out where it went wrong, but it persists and it's, it's quite strong in the popular representation in Spain. And so you, you can yeah. see over and over again, frustration on the part of academics uh, and historians in Spain and elsewhere, you know, us too, uh, in the U.S., who are just like really, really frustrated with how persistent this idea is in representing the medieval past and how far it is from the representation of the complexity on the ground as it was lived and and practiced and mm-hmm. uh, determined the history uh, that that we study. So this show is a perfect representation of that popular caricature, that sort of ideal, yeah. that liberal ideal that somehow has trickled into the popular mind, but that never had an academic foundation. It's just a reflection of this kind of the three cultures or the three faiths. And and we see it there in these these little monologues that Alfonso gets to give about peace Mm -hmm. and tolerance. But it's not the only way or not the only example that I've come across. You can find lots of examples of this. I actually own a game called Toledo, Mm -hmm. which is very similar. It's a little card game that I bought in Spain, where you, the whole goal of the game is to figure out how to preserve convivencia, right? There are all these sort of sources of tension Mm. 
and there are Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and there are all these things that can go wrong. And part of the strategy of the game is to collect the right number of like tolerance mm-hmm. cards and to construct <laughs> happy reality because Komi uh-huh. is, is under threat. And so you win the game by preserving this popular ideal of convivencia as peace mm-hmm. and love between the three cultures. Even yeah. the term, right? Las tres culturas yeah. or las tres religiones. This is completely a popular misunderstanding. Right. The idea uh, that there are somehow three equal cultures or three equal religions. The idea that this represents a triangle of, of equality is, is, of course, completely wrong, too. There was, there was never a three-way partnership. There was always a hierarchy that involved three or more you know, major groups yeah. with lots of combinations in between. So anyway, the popular representation in the show is just one of various representations that I think it's really curious how it's still, this is what, only 2012, this is still quite present and popular. Oh, absolutely. There was, uh, from the perspective of, you know, kind of thinking about how this is also very much a part of a tourism and of, you know, the encouraging of tourism to Spain, there was actually quite recently a sort of a New York Times travel article uh, in the last year, right, that, you know, is using these terms and is very much kind of promoting, like, this is why you go to Spain, right, is that this, you go to Spain to, you know, witness and experience this kind of history of convivencia. Yeah, and I mean, this is something I I think that I'm sure both of us get when we people say, what do you do? And you say, oh, I study medieval Spain. And suddenly, like, these are the questions you get. Yeah. You know, if they yeah. know what medieval Spain is at all, then they say, oh, <laughs> I've heard of that, right? Jews, Christians, right. and Muslims. How cool is that? That must be wonderful, right? It sounds idyllic right. to people because it's like the, the it's, it's like studying, you know, uh, I don't know, this imaginary world of great tolerance. And people think that it's right. uh, a time of great you know, special time of beauty. Um, right. And- Which then is also, I find so uh, interesting and striking in terms of actually even questions that I sometimes get from academics who do not work on, you know, other medievalists, but who do not work on Spain in particular is, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I work in particular, you know, most of my work so far has been on, you know, Catalonia and on Northern Catalonia. And it's really not an area that has much of a history of Muslim presence and all, and <laughs> Uh, very often, the first question I get asked if I say, you know, I'm talking about Jews and Christians is what about the Muslims? And well, the answer is that the only Muslims I see in the vast majority of the documentation I look at are people who are enslaved. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're like, what's that? What about the three cultures? Right. What about right. peace and love? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think this is this is something that's useful for teaching because this is uh, undoing these myths is really an important yeah. goal of at least what what I think my classes do. And so when I use this material like this show, it's useful as a kind of foil. The exercise, mm-hmm. I, w- I, was, I was thinking a lot for this discussion, how bad this show is and how, uh, <laughs> because of its anach- anach- anachronistic points and all of its distortions, because of its representation of violence against women and, and in general, gratuitous, you know, trash, essentially. Like what redeeming, qualities does this show have? And I kept thinking, well, this has actually been really useful for teaching because mm-hmm. uh, it presents a very simplified kind of caricature yeah. of the Middle Ages. And students like it because it's mm-hmm. you know dramatically easy to follow, 
So there's not a lot of uh, subtlety in the drama. Mm-hmm. So it's also in Spanish. So students are struggling with the language. They can, you know, yeah. they can follow a really simple plot designed through mm-hmm. scowls and <laughs> evil looks, right. even when they don't understand the language. So it's really useful for teaching. Mm-hmm. But at, at the same time, it's useful for teaching as a foil. So I can ask, and I do ask students to essentially learn how to critique it. We watch mm-hmm. it and then I say, okay, what about this is wrong? What's wrong? You know, what's inaccurate historically? What's made up? What's completely distorted? And then what about it is also anachronistic? You know, what about it is, is, is a vision that doesn't yeah. fit here? And I think that that's a really useful exercise because rather yeah. than just telling them, oh, this is right and that's wrong, or, or just mm-hmm. showing them a good representation of the past, this is so completely fraught and distorted that it's it's really easy to pick out what's wrong with it once mm-hmm. they learn some of the basic uh, structures and, and, and truths uh, of this period. So I think that it's a really useful tool for teaching uh, in general because it's so popularized and so distorted yeah. that it, it's, it's like yeah. a fly ball almost in terms of identifying what's wrong. Students are like, mm-hmm. oh, that's actually <laughs> really obvious to me now. And, and that exercise yeah. gives them that, that ability to do it in general. Mm-hmm. You know, then they go to Spain on study abroad or they right. study history and they like, wow, this is actually all over the place. Um, and mm-hmm. they become quite good critics. Yeah. I similarly tend to find that the things that are really unambiguously bad as representations of the medieval past are in some ways more helpful for teaching. I don't know how feasible it would be for me to use this just because I have classes where I can't assume any Spanish language skills whatsoever. But, you know, my my sort of examples are, you know, Braveheart and Kingdom of Heaven, where they're just <laughs> yeah. they're just so bad and so wrong about pretty much everything that it's sort of very easy in that it's in, in some ways are kind of very easy teaching tools in terms of pointing out, okay, what are the tropes that you're seeing here? What are the kinds of choices being made? Uh, you know, what doesn't fit that? Yeah. That there is something kind of satisfying about something like this, which is just so ridiculous in so many ways that it is a sort of, in some ways, kind of more effective teaching tool than something that gets a decent amount. Right. And it does all of this, uh, without ignoring completely some of the basic elements. So you do see, mm-hmm. you know, there is, the, the names are right. So you have right. Alfonso, Fernando, Sancho, you know, the name of his book, Cantigas de Santa Maria, or the fact that it's uh, it, it represents his interests, like the book of chess. It's there mm-hmm. in the background. There are There's Jews, kind of Christians, recognizable and recognizable elements, right? So even though they completely distort it and get it all wrong, they, they, all of the elements are there, or many of them. And so they're they're like presented for discussion, uh, and then we can pick them apart or or evaluate them. Slavery too is another one, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk about like, well, what what's the real uh, understanding? What's yeah. the real history of slavery in the Iberian Peninsula? Th- this one episode about the slave, the Christian slave of Abu Bark, uh-huh. who uh, is eventually freed. This is an interesting one because it actually quotes. There's like a voiceover at the end when mm-hmm. Alfonso's voice booms in and reads from what is supposed to be the Siete Partidas, you know, his law right. code. And it's like, we're, we're inventing the Siete Partidas in response <laughs> to this specific situation, which, which is silly, but... And, and it's also quite interesting. I've done this with students because I make them look up what it's referring to, right? I've had them go hunt down the actual quote that it's trying to read. And it starts mm-hmm. out kind of appropriate, 
there is actually a line in the Siete Partidas where Alfonso says that a lord shouldn't, in the actual text says, he should not injure his slave in a way that is against natural reason. And mm-hmm. unless he finds him with his wife or daughter or committing an act with them, right, uh, in which case he can kill them. That's the quote. Right. <laughs> but he does say that someone should not hurt or kill his slave or starve him. Mm-hmm. That's a quote. And that's what Alfonso starts to read. But right. then he adds this whole other thing saying, the Lord is responsible that slaves not lose their human dignity. That's their parsing of not doing things that are against natural reason. And mm-hmm. so I think it's really interesting how the modern yeah. kind of liberal ideal can change the meaning of this completely. You know, the idea that somehow human dignity or that the Lord is responsible that slaves not lose their human dignity. Uh, that's not what he says, right? He doesn't say no. that. He says you're not allowed to kill or starve unless you find them with your daughter. So like, um, right. I think not, idea, yeah. that he's protecting slaves not completely wrong, right? That he's legislating that. The idea that he's talking about dignity and tolerance and, you know, these things is, is of course, right. not, not his issue, it's ours. So students and, yeah. can find that by comparing mm-hmm. his words to the truth. You know, it's useful. Yeah, I mean, and also, of course, not to mention that in terms of the actual kind of ideas about slavery being put forth in the Siete Partidas, so they are very, very deeply embedded within the religious hierarchy, which is kind of a theme in what happens or how things play out in the show, but then is ignored in terms of how Alfonso is presented as ultimately responding to it. When in reality, when you you know you read the Siete Partidas, it very much is clear on the fact that, I mean, as as a Muslim, you cannot, in fact have a Christian slave if you are, you know, a subject of the, you know, the kingdom of, I mean, this is obviously a kind of messy situation in terms of he's like from Granada and what, you know, et cetera. But, you know, if you are actually a kind of Muslim resident of Castile, you are not in fact, or a Jewish resident of Castile, you in fact could not have. And so there's, you know, the, the extent to which there are protections being given are fundamentally different in terms of, you know, there are these protections to some extent being given to these enslaved people, many of whom are Muslim. But, you know, Christians simply got the protection that they they can't be enslaved, at least by Muslims, right? And that, you know, you you right. sort of at least have that kind of element of a protection. And that's being left out, right? The ways in which religious hierarchies are very, very much a part of, uh, of medieval slavery. I think it would have been much more interesting if in the first episode, instead of Abu Bar killing Rodrigo's wife, he enslaved her, mm-hmm. took her back yeah. to Granada. And then that was like, he was, you know, keeping her in the background this whole time. Like that would have been semi That would have actually made sense. Yeah. Right. And continued with the whole rationale for having a, a rivalry between them or a hatred between them that lasts throughout the whole show. It actually comes out too, that Rodrigo apparently slaughtered Abu Bark's wife and didn't know it at some point that that comes right. out in one of the episodes, which is really interesting. That wouldn't have happened. A pregnant woman too, right? He slaughtered a pregnant woman (laughs) or burned her uh, in the house. And he says, oh, I didn't realize. So this (laughs) this idea, I think there was a chance to do it historically, but they they didn't either have enough historical information or didn't Mm -hmm. want to. And I think it's just simply that they didn't do any research, that it's just, they, they have a very popular framework to work in and that they used completely superficial ideas. Yeah. But- the desire is there and, and the desire must have been motivated by a sense that this was going to sell to the yeah. public, right? That, that this and that's image the goal, is right? Sell. Is that this is how people want to think about, I mean, this is, this is how people in Spain want to think about their own past, right? And so, you know, or 
at least in some parts of Spain, uh, you know, well, I don't know if we want to get into Spanish national, you know, <laughs> you know, nationalisms within Spain, but at least in some parts of Spain, right? This is how people want to think about their past. Yeah. And so that's that is what's going to sell, right? I mean, the the kind of like nuanced, pragmatic convivencia people, yes, they live together, but it's not always particularly harmonious. And nobody really thinks that's especially a good thing as opposed to just the way things are. That's that is not necessarily what's going to sell. But that is, I think, a kind of good or uh, perhaps interesting lead in to uh, the segment I have called the Fabula Nostra, where we come up with ideas for a film or show that we would like to see in the world in addition to or instead of this one in terms of, you know, how how would we want this to be told? Would that actually sell? Uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that most of the things that I want to see as, you know, movies or TV shows aren't necessarily things that are what most people want to see as movies or TV shows <laughs> set in the Middle Ages. I know that what I would actually want to see is both something that has a bit more of that kind of realism, but also actually something that is about not the, you know, upper echelons of society, right? I mean, with the, you know, we kind of touch on our, you know, occasional servants that are prostitutes and whatnot, but that really this is a show that is centered on elites, the king and the princes and the main figures at the royal court, uh, Muslims who are the kind of leading members of their community, a Jew who's like, as far as we can tell, maybe the only member of his community. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but that I think it would be interesting to have some kind of show that, you know, even if we have the kind of silly soap opera drama and the sex and the violence that kind of does that with ordinary people. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. There's basically no representation of the lower or regular classes outside of those elites in film in general or in in TV in general in the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. but uh, with Spain even less. And whatever gets represented is always just caricatured you know they're wearing sackcloths and they're dirty um and they're simple and so i think that the the representation of real experiences like what was life actually like for these people without going into caricatures yeah i think would be really interesting and there could be plenty of drama but then i think it would be confusing because when when you go into a historical drama and people don't have any historical background they're always wondering like, well, how does the historical context play into this plot? Mm -hmm. And so it'd be really hard to have a plot that was historically relevant or informed. Right. Like this is in the middle ages. This is in Castile or this is in Aragon Mm -hmm. that somehow then was just like a story that wasn't actually uh, constantly referring to the, these kind of basic caricatured ideas about the middle ages. Like how do they make sense of the drama? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to have a historical drama because you need actual yeah. historical information <laughs> uh, right. to, to do anything beyond the, the simplest uh, ideas. And so you end up mm-hmm. with things like Braveheart or you end up with, right. you know, worse where the, the dramatizations are completely ahistorical because they're just like these, these images, these tropes. Mm-hmm. And the this why I actually really right enjoy something like, I mean, you know, the film, the little hours, which is, you know, set in 14th century Italy. And it's, uh, it's kind of based on um, some of the, uh, some of the stories from the Decameron, but it's really just this kind of, you know, silly comedic story about nuns. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's not tied to this kind of like big, you know, power plays happening in, you know, late medieval and the, you know, the late medieval Italian peninsula. I think that's harder to do. And I think that's harder to sell. 
But I kind of like things like that, where you have stories that are in the Middle Ages, but that are not the sort of obvious stories about the Middle Ages that people tend to want to tell. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the series Isabel that was uh, also about 10 years ago, um, representing Queen Isabel. And it was mm-hmm. long, you know, three long seasons of 13 episodes each. So it's like on and on and on. And then it carried on into two further shows, a whole show of three episode, three seasons of 13 each of Carlos V, of Carlos V, his, uh, you know, the, the emperor in the 16th century. And then it carries on beyond that. So it's like this ongoing, super, super, super uh, long series about Spanish history. But the one of Isabel is a much higher production value and it represents all of these really important historical events at the end of the 15th century from Isabel herself becoming queen to treaties with Portugal that were decisive to of course the big events of 1492 you know the expulsion of the Jews or the conquest of Granada or Columbus and then what happens afterwards there's there's also like a whole story with uh, the muslims of spain after during and after the conquest and how they were forced to convert and the morisco history as well and the uprising all of that is represented in a way that i think has never been represented before and it's not completely caricatured like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't get that much wrong so you can sort of follow the history you know and not just cringe at every moment as a historian and at the same time, it's it's not only focused on the history. There's a lot of interactions that at sort of different levels. So there is, of course, the queen and her entourage, but then there are a lot of other kind of representations and side characters that have to do with especially the nobles and their dealings without the queen and like their personal uh, relationships and other relationships kind of outside of the sphere of the queen. So I really enjoyed that show because it takes so long to unfold and each episode is really long. So there's just so much material that they really do delve into a lot of side mm-hmm. stories, including kind of, you know, the small people. Yeah. The regular people. That's a, a pretty good show, especially for teaching, you know, and it works mm-hmm. really well as a contrast to, to these kinds of shows. So I always end yeah. my class with that. Something I'd like to see, which doesn't exist, as far as I know, which I think would be, make a great drama, is a, a movie about Pedro the First, Peter the Cruel, mm-hmm. uh, the 14th century king, who was Alfonso's, I think, great, 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 great grandson. I don't know if there's too many greats in there, but he was, you know, a descendant of Alfonso and king of Castile Leon. But he was also a, a king who was in the mindset uh, of Alfonso's interests. Mm-hmm. He was interested in translation and language. He's one of the key people who who contributed to the expansion of the Alcazar Palace in Seville. And uh, I'm fascinated by what he did there. You know, he was working mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with the, the Muslims in Granada, the Nasrids, and right. using their artisans and workmen mm-hmm. and actually decorating his palace in a similar way. Yeah. Arabic calligraphy. And I think the mentality, right, of using... Islamic heritage uh, or whatever mm-hmm. they thought that was Islamic heritage to kind of decorate their royal image and uh, to call on that history in a way that was deliberate and not antagonistic exactly. is It's really an interesting parallel. Plus there's yeah. the entire drama of Peter, Pedro the Cruel and his brother, because Pedro was the only legitimate son and had 10 illegitimate brothers and sisters. 
And it seems he, like it's made for this sort of, for, you know, this sort of show. There'd be all kinds of drama and intrigue. And there'd be also like the ultimate kind of sort of climax of Peter and his brother, Enrique, who ultimately kills him uh, and mm-hmm. takes the crown. So this is yeah. like the, the rising up of the illegitimate son, but mm-hmm. only after a long battle in which Peter struggles to hold on to his wealth and crown and kills off many of his siblings <laughs> deliberately, right? Like has them assassinated or killed, even in the Alcazar itself in Seville. There's all kinds of drama, plus the, the drama of uh, what's going on in the sort of in the context of his relationships with Jews and Samuel Halevi in Toledo building right. the great synagogue, El Transito. This is all under Pedro's. Yeah. Which is, of course, also drawing on the same kind of Islamic architectural vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. So I think this would make a really great show to dramatize and a really great story. So it's both dramatic as well as uh, sort of bringing in all of the same questions and elements that you could do in this Toledo Mm -hmm. show. But you could only do this right if you had a high production value. Like, yeah. This, this Alfonso show is so cheap that it's, <laughs> you know, it doesn't do justice to it's, what it, yeah. uh, what it's, de- what it's dealing with and everything looks cheesy and, and, you know, sort of uh, painted with finger paint. And I think that uh, to do a show like that, you'd have to really, really uh, invest in it. I'm really mm-hmm. interested. I don't know if you've seen this documentary that's come out in Spain just a few months ago called the builders of the Alhambra. Um, no, I've heard about it, but I've not gotten a chance to watch it yet. Yeah, it's it's. I I think so far it's only in theaters in Spain. It's been okay. shown in Spain in a bunch of places, and I haven't seen it available for streaming or mm-hmm. anything yet. But it's you know a documentary about the construction of the Alhambra, but it has a whole bunch of historical recreation scenes mm-hmm. of the 14th century. So this exact mm-hmm. period, and in particular mm-hmm. the great Ibn al-Khatib, who's like the most important writer yeah. from Nasrid Granada really, really important on multiple fronts, both as a writer himself, a poet, and as a preserver, an anthologist of Arjas and Mwashaha poetry. Mm -hmm. So he's a really interesting figure. And this, I think, dramatizes him and the construction of the Alhambra based on what I've seen of the clips in a really interesting way that really paints a vivid picture of what it means to build that palace all the workmen, all of the artisans, the vision, the desire, and then the context of like, what is it like in Granada in the 14th mm-hmm. century? So yeah. uh, I'm dying to go awesome. see that. Can't yeah. wait. <laughs> that would be great. I think that that would, would make an excellent show too. Like that could be yeah. part of the context. Yeah, absolutely. That's my Fabula Nostra. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last section that we have is the estimatio or rating, where you rate this piece of media on a scale of one to five based on whatever subjective criteria you see fit. Mm, This is tough. Yeah. So tough. I think for me, ultimately, it's so ridiculous. I do have to to be harsh and go with the one out of five, which does not mean I'm saying necessarily don't watch it. And I can certainly very much see why it would be extremely helpful for teaching, especially, you know, if you have students who are, you know, kind of coming in with uh, at least some basic Spanish uh, and can count on that, that I can certainly see that. But I, I think ultimately, given both how sort of historically ridiculous it is in so many respects, plus the implicit anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and a lot of very kind of problematic gender things that are happening I think that's ultimately what I have to go with, probably especially also because I will say 
I can see why this would be really helpful for teaching, but it also kind of sets my teeth on edge that people are watching this not in the context of a class and that it's reinforcing ideas they have about the Middle Ages. That in a lot of ways, this is sort of exactly what I don't want people to uh, to learn about the Middle Ages and knowing that you know most people aren't who are watching this aren't watching it in a class where they get to learn what's not being done well. They're just watching it and then think that you know, obviously they kind of know certain things, right? I mean, you sort of dismiss, all right, we obviously know that they kind of switched around the suns and it's silly, but a lot of the kind of underlying themes that are problematic are still going to be probably pretty much unequivocally accepted by a lot of the audience for the show. I think I would agree with you. It's a, I mean, if I could, it's so bad, I'd give it a zero. (laughs) You actually can give it a zero. (laughs) The official policy of the podcast is that any host or guest can give one zero. For me, it is not quite bad enough to overcome the last thing I gave a zero to. (laughs) Well, I, (laughs) I do think because, I mean, I'm impressed by the desire to represent this and mm-hmm. the, the attempt to depict all of these characters. So there's something redeeming about it, even though the, the execution is a total yeah. failure. It's, it's so bad, but I'm also attracted to how, how completely kitsch it is and just the total soap opera feel that uh, it starts to give me good feelings again, because it's so bad. It's like a B movie that I'm enjoying yeah. for its badness. So I'm going to give it a 1.5 on yeah. those virtues, right? It's mm-hmm. terrible on many levels, but there's some other things which I think, you know, it, it is teachable and it is also just deliciously awful. So yeah. it's really, really fun um, to <laughs> to delve into. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm going to give it a 1.5 on that. Yeah. And I will say right. it was it was a lot of fun to discuss, especially given that I uh, I don't often actually get to discuss the Iberian Peninsula on this podcast, since, in my opinion, you know, especially, you know, England, when you're, you know, watching mostly English language movies, they are kind of disproportionately set in England and France, which I'm very sick of. So, well, we you know, some appreciate for that. You should definitely uh, have another show about the Cid, which is yes. uh, a wonderful two series, 10 episode representation, really high production value. Mm -hmm. Um, Not, not terribly ahistorical, but also cheesy in a lot of ways. So it's a really interesting contrast to this streaming now on Amazon. So there are definitely caricatures in that too, but I have, I won't get into it. Lots to say about the Sid (laughs) Sid show or the Isabel show. Yeah. And I, and I will add if anybody else is, uh, you know, interested, the other thing that this, uh, you know, also sort of reminded me of is the also sort of ridiculous in a lot of ways and with some kind of soap opera email elements is a cathedral of the sea, which takes place in, uh, in my, my main geographical area. Which is also teach with that. I love that. Yeah, one. yeah. Which is similarly, <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. So, uh, and I'll to to put in a plug for my own show as well. Uh, I have an episode talking about that that came out a while back with Marie Kelleher. So uh, check that out if you're interested in uh, learning more about Spanish representations of the medieval past. Oh yeah, I'm waiting for your follow up to do on um, you know heirs of the earth part two. Right, they've come out now with. Oh God, they have. The continuation oh, no. <laughs> of that, which is oh, another novel by the, you know, the same author. And so they've, I, I think they have another, I want to say 10 episodes. Dear. Heirs of the Earth, following up on the family of Arnau and what happens after <laughs> after the end. Yep. Lucky me. <laughs> more, more good stuff. Yeah. 
Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Yes, I have a website, which is you can simply Google my name and find a WordPress website. My name has a tricky Z in it, so you'll have to pay attention to how you spell S-Z-P-I-E-C-H. But if you just Google Ryan's speech, you'll find it. Also, I have an academia.edu page for those of you who have that. And then if you're interested in, again, the movie, The Birth of Spanish in 3D, and all of the stuff that goes with it, you can simply Google that phrase, The Birth of Spanish in 3D, or go to uh, YouTube, where I have all of my media at, uh, at Ryan Speech as one word. Uh, so all of that is pretty available on the web. Um, you can also find this through the U of M page at University of Michigan. If you put in Ryan Speech Michigan, you'll find that page and links to all of these other things. So uh, a lot of stuff up there, including lectures of mine and all of my publications too. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll put some of those links in the show notes as well. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on, uh, uh, what is it called now? X? Oh, boy. Interesting. Good God. At Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group, uh, you know, for for the time being on it might just not even <laughs> exist but you know by the time this episode comes out who knows you can find me on x and instagram at sarah if decker if you have any questions or suggestions i'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com so ryan thank you again thank you and thank you all for listening to media evil bye